I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In contemporary discussions about Islam, a topic that often comes up is that of Salafism. The Salafi movement is associated with things like fundamentalism and even jihadism sometimes. But what is this movement all about? Where does it come from? What is its relationship to mainstream Islam? And what role does it play in the world, both in the Islamic world and the world more generally today? In this episode, we're going to explore these questions and the controversial but very important topic of Salafism. Salafism is an important and significant factor in the landscape of Islam in the contemporary world. One cannot get a full grasp of the wider Islamic context today without taking into account the Salafis, who are often very influential in certain regions, especially in places like Saudi Arabia. The term Salafism, or Salafia, is taken from the Arabic phrase as-salaf as-salih, the pious predecessors, a term denoting the generation of Muslims who lived at the time of the Prophet Muhammad, as well as the following two generations after. These are considered important as carriers of the most pure form of Islam because they lived close to the time of the Prophet himself, or sometimes contemporarily with him. And the Salafis, as their name suggests, put a major emphasis on this. In very short terms, Salafism is a religious movement that seeks to purify Islam and return to practice it in a way that is in line with the Salaf, the predecessors mentioned. Now, important to remember here is that this isn't unique to Salafism. The Salaf, or pious predecessors, are a huge inspiration to most or even all Muslims around the world, and so the Salafis aren't unique in putting an emphasis on that per se, and this is pretty well expressed in a story. So, a few years ago when I was doing my master's thesis, I studied the Tijaniya Sufi Brotherhood, so this is a very popular form of Islam 
in West Africa in particular, in Senegal and the Gambia. And I was spending time with this uh, Tijani group and we were discussing Islam in various ways. And in this discussion, I was talking and these different terms came up like Sufi and Salafi. And to this group, they, at least most of them, had never heard these terms before. They were like, what's a Sufi and what's a Salafi? Um, they just saw themselves as being Muslims. And that's it. They practiced Islam in the way that they understood Islam to be practiced correctly, even though from an outsider's perspective, it's clear that what you know their practice of Islam was heavily Sufi-oriented, because they belonged to a Sufi brotherhood and so on. But so then we started to, uh, me and one of their imams, started to explain these terms. So this is what Sufi means, and you know this is what Salafi means. And so we explained the basics of what Salafi means, that Salafism is the you know, wanting to purify Islam from innovation and returning it to the ways, the pure ways that Islam was practiced in the earliest days by the Prophet Muhammad and his companions and the earliest uh, predecessors or the successors. And when we had explained this, the Tijanis there basically said, well, well then we're Salafis. This indicates something important. All Muslims, especially Sunni Muslims, consider themselves to follow the Salaf as Saleh and to practice Islam correctly according to the way that they did. What is different about the Salafis is rather their methodology and approach to finding out what following the way of the Salaf actually means and often the conclusions that they draw as a result. Salafism is often called a modern phenomenon, even a modernist movement in Islam. And this is true in a sense. Salafism does come to prominence as a movement primarily in the last two centuries, and often in response to changes and circumstances particular to our modern and even postmodern age. But this is also a bit too narrow of a perspective. If we define Salafism just a little more broadly as the particular theological and legal approach to Islam that they are associated with, then we find Salafism much earlier in history as well. We should, of course, take into account the perspective of the Salafis themselves. To them, Salafism has existed since the very beginnings of Islam because this was the way that Muhammad and his companions practiced and understood their religion. To the Salafis, this is Islam in its truest and most pure form. As neutral observers of this phenomenon and from a academic perspective, we can't of course make any claims or statements about the validity of such claims, but I think the internal Salafi perspective is also very important to keep in mind in these discussions. But putting this aside, we have tendencies that we could call Salafi in later Islamic history too. If we define the term really broadly, we might be able to see traces of it in the movement of the Ahl al-Hadith, or the traditionalists, which was a heavily textual movement in early Islam, perhaps most strongly associated with the figure of Ahmed ibn Hanbal, the eponymous founder of the Hanbali Law School. Their approach was one of purifying Islam of the rationalist tendencies that dominated the religion at the time by favoring a textual approach where religion was to be based only on the textual sources, the Quran and the Hadith, and thus were important for the increased prominence of Hadith literature. Now, most people would not identify the early traditionalists as Salafis per se, but their methodology would have a major influence on the movement in later periods. The Hanbali school of law and theology is often considered the most strict law school in Islam for various reasons. Indeed, one of the most foundational figures in Salafism and the emergence of their characteristic doctrines was the 14th century Hanbali jurist and theologian Ibn Taymiyyah. Ibn Taymiyyah lived in the immediate aftermath of the sacking of Baghdad and right in the middle of the Mongol invasions of the Islamic world, and his ideas reflect this reality. 
This catastrophe was a punishment from God, according to Ibn Taymiyyah, because the Muslims had strayed from the pure practice of real Islam. His whole intellectual project was one of purifying Islam of various innovations, or bidah, as he saw it, and return it to its true form. As such, he was heavily critical of the Sufis, who basically dominated the Islamic world at the time and condemned many of their beliefs and practices. He also came to reject and criticize some of the major intellectual traditions that had developed for centuries before. He rejected these speculative rationalistic kalam theologians and their approach to God, preferring instead an approach that neglected all forms of speculation regarding the word of God and scripture. For example, if the Quran states that God has anthropomorphic qualities, one should accept what the text says without speculating on what it actually means. Furthermore, he also rejected what's known as taqlid, or the imitation and following of the established law schools in terms of law and practice, instead preferring what is known as ijtihad, that the individual jurist should go back to the textual sources and interpret things himself only based on that without necessarily consulting the established traditions of jurisprudence. I have a full episode on Ibn Taymiyyah if you want to dive into his ideas and doctrines more deeply, but needless to say, his ideas would become foundational and central to the later development of what we know as Salafism today. Even today, Ibn Taymiyyah is very important for Salafism, and he is referred to constantly as a source of doctrine and as a defender of true Islam from a Salafi perspective. Ibn Taymiyyah and his immediate followers, while significant, didn't exert much of an influence during his lifetime or for the following centuries and remained mostly a minor movement until relatively recently. But his writings and ideas were spread in certain circles, especially in the Hanbali school, and would influence some significant movements in later periods. Of these is the movement that is often called Wahhabism, named after its founder Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. We should remember that Wahhabism is not a word that they use to refer to themselves, but is usually a term used by others. They prefer the term al-muwahidun, the monotheists, but there are so many groups in Islamic history who call themselves by this name that it would get really confusing, so I'm going to use the term Wahhabism occasionally, but keeping in mind that this is an outsider's term and that it can be perceived as even offensive by some who belong to this group that is often called by this name, but sure we should at least keep this in mind as we talk about this topic. Ibn Abdul Wahhab was an 18th century reformer from Najd in modern Saudi Arabia. He sought to reform Islam and Islamic society by purifying it of aspects that he saw as heretical innovation. Much like figures such as Ibn Taymiyyah, he believed that Muslims had strayed from their true religion and currently lived in a time of jahiliyyah, ignorance, just like in the pre-Islamic period. The cure for this was to return to pure monotheism, tawhid, and the Qur'an and the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad. Thus, anything that he saw as compromising this very strict view of monotheism was strongly condemned, things like the intercession of saints or visiting of their graves. As such, he strongly condemned significant traditions within Islam at the time, such as Sufism and Shiism, all of whose ideas and practices he considered to be reprehensible innovations, and even shirk, which is association or polytheism, which is the greatest sin in Islam. He even went so far as to claim that anyone who followed such practices were considered kufar, unbelievers, and apostates, and it was thus legitimate to wage war against them. This idea that one can excommunicate certain people as unbelievers based on their beliefs or practices, known as takfir, has also become an influential idea in Salafism. 
Just like Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Abdul Wahhab's movement was a relatively minor one at first, but it had its influence, of course. Especially since he also allied himself with the political figure of Muhammad ibn Saud, an alliance of Wahhabi clerics, which is known as Ahl al-Sheikh, and the Saud family that has remained until this very day. So-called Wahhabism did indeed come to have a much more major influence later on, and especially with the formation of Saudi Arabia with the Saud family at its head, after which Wahhabism became the official doctrine of the state. So what is the relationship between this and Salafism? Often when we talk about these topics, Salafism and so-called Wahhabism is often used interchangeably, as if they're the same thing. But what is the difference between them if there is any? It is indeed a little complicated, but we can look at it like this. The so-called Wahhabi movement is a kind of Salafism especially when we define that word broadly as the general tendencies that have existed throughout history. It is one particular expression of Salafism as such. But Wahhabism also had a major influence on the emergence and doctrines of modern Salafism, Salafism proper or more narrowly defined as it exists today, and this will become clear later. So in a sense, all Wahhabis are Salafis, but not all Salafis are Wahhabis. In any case, it is from around this time that Salafism starts to emerge as a significant movement in Islam, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries. Just as it has always been, it is a kind of reform movement, or movements, that reject much of the established Islamic tradition. And many such movements appeared in the 19th century. One of these that is often called Salafi is the modernist reforms of figures like Al-Afghani and Muhammad Abdu, but their quote-unquote Salafism is very different from that of Abdul Wahhab or the later Salafis. They have the same basic approach in some ways, criticizing much of the tradition as innovation and an appeal to ijtihad or reinterpretation rather than imitation of earlier president, but the conclusions and attitudes of these figures are very different from Salafism as we know it. They wanted to modernize Islam and were much more open to Western influence and education as harmonious with and even beneficial to Islam. They also were not anti-speculation or against rationalism in religion in the way that the classical Salafis like Ibn Taymiyyah were. So while this reform movement, often known as the Nahda, is often called Salafi, it is very different in nature. But you could say that this tradition-critical approach to Islam was generally very popular at this time, partly as a response to colonialism, of course, and this would appear in many different guises. Figures like Abdu were important in popularizing this approach, but which had many different results. It led to everything from Islamic modernism and liberalism to the modern Salafism, because aside from the Nahda, there are many other movements that appeared around this time that could be characterized more strictly as Salafi. So-called Wahhabism is one of them, but there were also the Ahli Hadith, which took form in the 1860s on the Indian subcontinent, as well as many other examples. And it is from the late 19th century, and especially during the 20th century, that Salafism as we know it really starts to emerge. Now that we have a historical background and context, and we have explored some of the basic elements of Salafi uh, ideology and doctrine, we can start to explore this a little more deeply. So what is Salafism all about? Salafism is, at its core, a pietistic movement based on theological principles. As we have mentioned, they focus on the idea of purifying Islam and returning it to what they see as the authentic beliefs and practices of the Salaf as Saleh, the pious predecessors. 
The way to reach this pure state of the religion, according to the Salafis, is through a heavily textual approach. The only sources allowed are the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad, which can be found only in the Sunni Hadith collections, as well as the consensus of the Prophet's companions, the Salaf in other words. And the particular Salafi reading of these sources are also usually very strict and, in a way, kind of literalist. Right, so as we saw in the beginning, it's not the fact that they follow the Salaf that make the Salafis unique, but rather their methodology to how to reach knowledge of what the practice and beliefs of the Salaf actually are. And this methodology involves particularly a very heavily textual approach, a very restrictive approach to what counts as a legitimate source, uh, and a very strict reading of those sources as well. As a opposed to what you could see, see mainstream Islam or tr more traditional Islam, uh, understood as Islam as it had developed over the centuries with its different schools of law and its very complex uh, system of law and theology and so on, uh, which also consider themselves to be representing the beliefs and practices of the Salaf, but had a different approach. They used the same sources, but they also accepted other techniques like rational deduction, uh, like consensus of the contemporary community, like analogy, things like that, and also generally a, a, an approach to the Salaf that wasn't as restrictive. The Sunnah of the Prophet and the Salaf includes a more broad perspective into which certain um, new ideas and, and changes according to time can take place within that more broader perspective of what the Salaf represent. But for the Salafis, rather, it is a more restrictive approach where it is only exactly what it says in the sources. Um, well, of course, I'm sure it's more nuanced than that, according to the Salafis. In a very general sense, you could say that their approach is one of a much more strict reading of the sources. This also means that they emphasize a particular understanding of Tawheed, or God's oneness, that puts them at odds with other forms of Islam, including the so-called mainstream forms. God's attributes are not to be interpreted metaphorically, but one should accept the literal words of scripture, although without inquiring about its actual meanings and not falling into crude anthropomorphism. Salafism is also characterized by a strong sense of exclusivity and an absolute claim to truth. Hence, they emphasize that everything that is considered bidah or innovation in the religion is to be actively fought and can even resort to excommunicating or performing takfir on those who don't conform to true religion. And this includes not practicing properly. Indeed, the Salafis generally hold to a theology where faith and outward action are connected, and the Muslim's actions are an important factor in whether he or she can be considered a true believer or not. This means that one can excommunicate someone who does not follow the religious rules, like praying five times a day, or in the more politically active branches of Salafism, that one can criticize political rulers who don't uphold Islamic law and thus consider them unbelievers on that basis. This exclusive access to true religion leads the Salafis to be very actively critical of other forms of Islam that it considers illegitimate. The Sufis and the Shi'is often face the bulk of this criticism. Salafis heavily criticize practices like visiting graves of saints or prophets, celebrating the birthday of Prophet Muhammad, which is known as Mawlid, or any form of intercession between God and the believer. Thus, Salafis will often call Sufis quburiyun, or grave worshippers, and Shi'is as the rafidi, or rejectionists. This active opposing of other groups within Islam is part of the process of purifying Islam of heresy and innovation, and is characteristic of Salafi absolutism. 
Bernard Haikel says, quote, One might conceive the effort that Salafis are engaged in to be one of continuous boundary defense, the delimitation of the community of pure believers as opposed to those outside it who are in one way or more ways theologically corrupted and in error. It is probably for this reason that Salafis have also developed and emphasized an idea known as al-wala wal-bara, which can be translated as loyalty and disavowal, a bit roughly. In basic terms, this is an idea of association and disassociation. Salafis are encouraged to hold fast to the true community of believers, but to actively distance themselves from non-believers, shun them, and even sometimes hate them. It is a kind of very strong us-and-them thinking, but made into doctrine. Mainstream Sunni Islam has rejected this idea historically and today, but it has become an important feature of many Salafi groups. Many have criticized it as a reason that Salafi migrants have a hard time integrating into society or that it leads to fundamentalism and extremism. But aside from these basic theological ideas which characterize Salafism and which is accepted pretty universally across that whole movement or movements, there are also characteristics in terms of law and practice, the Salafis are often quite distinct even compared to other Muslims. Quote, a Salafi is immediately recognizable to others through distinctive dress, social and religious habits, prayer postures, and the content and form of his speech. As we saw earlier, Salafis often reject the long tradition of Islamic jurisprudence and criticize the idea of taqlid, of following the already established president of established law schools. Instead, they emphasize ijtihad, that the individual should only rely on the scriptures directly and interpret it for themselves. It is common in Salafism to claim that all the answers are clearly visible to anyone in the original text, that the Quran and Sunnah provide answers to all possible questions, and that an individual jurist or person can simply advise the text and get the answer without having to rely on earlier scholars who have used various tools to interpret it. Nonetheless, in this, the Salafis generally follow an interpretive tendency of very strict and direct reading. But this emphasis on ijtihad in this way is not universal across all of Salafism. For example, the so-called Wahhabis generally follow the Hanbali law school, often considered the most strict. And in this way, the Wahhabis and many other modern Salafis differ. Salafi personalities like Nasruddin al-Albani criticized the Wahhabis for doing taqlid by following the Hanbali school and instead urged for the superiority of ijtihad. But as we saw, the Salafi movement in general is very influenced by the Hanbali school in particular, and many have, even though they hold to the idea of ijtihad or reading the scriptures directly, often follow a line of interpretation closely aligned with the Hanbalis, such as in the case with Ibn Taymiyyah. In any case, it is on this basis that Salafism operates, and through which it grew to great prominence in the 20th century. Scholars at places of learning in Saudi Arabia in particular developed a strong basis through which Salafism has spread across the Islamic world and elsewhere. Figures like the already mentioned al-Albani have been central figures in the emergence of Salafism in the last century. But Salafism is not homogenous. There are many different groups and expressions who fall under this category who, while following the basic doctrinal model that we have outlined, can differ greatly in their approach. This is visible, for example, in their relationship with politics. Contrary to what many may believe, the majority of Salafis are actually quietists. They are uninterested in politics and often accept whatever the current leadership happens to be. Their focus is rather on the pious life and the purification of the Islamic religion from the inside rather than through political action. Nasr al-Albani is maybe the most famous example of this quietist approach. 
He often taught that one should shun any involvement in political or social groups as this would create strife or conflict within the Muslim community. But there have been Salafi groups who have chosen a more active line, probably influenced by political organizations such as the Muslim Brotherhood who are not Salafi, some adherents have considered political action to be required in order to fight against innovation and polytheism, and have tried to change political leadership that is considered illegitimate, actively that is. And of course, there are those who have taken this so far that their actions include violence. And this is where we get into the topic of jihadi Salafism. This tendency, which is a minority even within Salafism, claims that action must be taken to change illegitimate political leadership, and that violence is a legitimate way of doing this. I think no one has escaped the presence of these kinds of groups in the last few decades, as they include groups like Al-Qaeda and the so-called Islamic State. These movements did grow out of Salafism and belong to that category more broadly, but they do not make up the majority of Salafis. Often when we talk about these kinds of topics, we see people completely equating the two, that all Salafis are jihadis, and this is simply not true. As we saw, the majority of Salafis are quietists. They are uninterested in politics, and certainly, uh, in that case, they do not consider violent uh, political action to be legitimate in that way either. But it is true, as I said, that it comes from Salafism, and that it uses some of the basic Salafi doctrines and ideas as the basis for their ideology. This jihadi strand of Salafism, in the way that we know it today, appeared in the last few decades. Many point to the influence of the Egyptian ideologue Said Qutb as a central factor in the development of jihadism. He argued that it was the individual duty of every Muslim to wage armed jihad against what he considered to be the enemies of Islam. We can see how Salafism throughout the 20th century grew to be a very visible part of the Islamic world today. Not only through the very visible actions of jihadist groups that we have mentioned, but also more generally through the basic ideas that they have emphasized. Even non-Salafis have often adapted ideas and terminology that is common in that movement without realizing it themselves. The huge emphasis on opposing bid'ah, calling Sufis grave worshippers, certain interpretations of scripture, and many other characteristic features of Salafism that have sometimes crept into non-Salafi Islam as well. One reason for their success, other than the obvious political circumstances such as being given an official position in Saudi Arabia, is probably that the Salafis have been very good at producing accessible information. Salafis would often publish journals in the 20th century, and today they have a very strong presence on the internet. Indeed, at least until recently, Salafism almost dominated the Islamic space online. Many of the sites you visit where legal opinions are given on Islamic topics are usually Salafi in nature or Salafi-influenced, but are often simply labeled as quote-unquote Islamic. And on social media, including on YouTube, there is a major presence of Salafi personalities who thus have major authority as representing Islam to a wider audience. Now again, this has started to change a bit in the last few years, and there are more diverse voices from the Muslim community present online in this way now, uh, which evens out the actual demographics a little bit. But you can't deny that the Salafis have been particularly good at producing accessible material online and, and, and otherwise um, to, to a wide audience across the world. So what is it that makes Salafism so attractive to many people? 
why has it become so successful in the Islamic world over the last two centuries or so? And what kind of person is it that is attracted to this movement? Well, aside from the very obvious media presence and, and talent at producing uh, content in terms of, of, of media and so on, uh, there are also other features which probably or contribute to the very strong spread and popularity of Salafism today. The claim to absolute or exclusive access to truth and the quote-unquote pure version of Islam, or of the only correct way to reach paradise, for instance, is indeed appealing to many. As Mayor Haikel and Adrawi points out, a lot of its success lies precisely in this ability to quote, morally upstage the opponent, and in quote, its capacity to say, we are better than you. Salafism also offers a sense of universalism, that purity of its doctrine transcending national cultural borders and speaking directly to the individual and inviting them to a community beyond all of these aspects. Indeed, Salafism has proved especially popular and successful among young Muslims, migrants who feel discriminated against or who feel confused about their various identities and the downtrodden in general. Quote, in a contentious age, Salafism transforms the humiliated, the downtrodden, disgruntled young people, the discriminated migrant, or the politically repressed into a chosen sect, al-firqa al-najiyya, that immediately gains privileged access to the truth. Salafis are therefore able to contest the hegemonic power of their opponents, parents, the elite, the state or dominant cultural and economic values of the global capitalist system, as well as the total identification with an alien nation which nation-states in Europe impose. Because of its emphasis on doctrinal purity and not politics, Salafism, more than the Muslim Brotherhood or Hizb tahrir has been able to empower individuals by providing a universal alternative model of truth and social action. Perhaps we can then understand at least part of the reason why Salafism has become such a significant part of the wider Islamic world today. As we have seen, in the most general sense, the basic doctrinal ideas, the, the features of Salafism dates back very far in history, according to Salafis, even back to the time of the Prophet Muhammad himself. But at the same time, the particular ways that it has manifested itself today in Salafism as we know it is also in direct response to circumstances in the contemporary modern world. It is a controversial topic, even among Muslims themselves around the world. According to themselves, Salafism is of course the most pure form of Islam, the only pure form of Islam and the true way of practicing and understanding that religion, whereas for their critics or their enemies, it's considered an innovation. As always, as neutral observers, it is not our place to make any statements about the validity of any of these claims on either side of the debate, but now we have a better understanding both historically, the historical context, and the basic outline of the features of Salafism so that we can better understand what it is, what role it plays in the Islamic world, um, how Salafis themselves understand their religion, how they understand the religion of Islam, and the way that Salafism uh, very much helps shape and form the wider Islamic world today. You can, of course, look forward to more content about topics relating to the Islamic world. Generally, it's kind of one of the main things we do here at Let's Talk Religion. Uh, for now, I hope this was an interesting and informative video about the very important Salafi movements of modern Islam and that it clarified a few things and gave you a broader perspective on this subject. And I'll see you next time.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.